Hello everyone, welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and we have with us here today, Alex Svanovic uh, from Nansen. Alex, thanks for being here with us today. So what got you interested in this particular space? Uh, what's your background and what was the path that led you to crypto and founding Nansen? I managed a team across Barcelona, London, and Oslo. And then 2017, I discovered Ethereum uh, and the rest is history. So it took a couple of months uh, from I even just heard about Ethereum for the first time until I just left my job and decided to go full-time crypto. And um, yeah, and the first thing I did was I joined a company in Hong Kong uh, to build up a data team there. And later on, uh, I went on to co-found Nansen in 2019. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Nansen is effectively uh, it's a blockchain analytics platform. Uh, and it allows you to surface the signal in all the noise that takes place uh, on blockchain. So we combine on-chain data which you, in theory, could get from any you know, public blockchain uh, yourself if you have the technical skills. But we combine that with proprietary data of wallet labels, um, which allow you to answer a lot of questions that you otherwise couldn't, uh, couldn't answer. So, uh, for example, how many tokens are sitting on a, on a specific exchange? You obviously need to um, annotate and label all the addresses that are owned by that exchange in order to answer that question. Um, and then there's tons of other things. Like I think most of the sort of actionable insights and, and useful information uh, that you can get from on-chain data, it requires that layer of of the real-world context on top of it. Okay. Uh, and so blockchain analytics is a very young space. Do, do you, can you give us a little bit of the history of, of blockchain analytics, like where it's how it started? Um, where it is now and where do you think it's going? So I think um, the first generation of blockchain analytics was certainly uh, primarily focused on uh, the regulatory aspects. So can you, you know, track uh, illicit use of um, cryptocurrencies, for example? And then, of course, law enforcement, um, tax authorities, government agencies, uh, etc., would be interested in knowing that, but also the exchanges, for example, that, that deal with these uh, digital assets, they, they could know if uh, any of the funds that come into their platform come from, you know, hacks or scams or uh, money laundering activity, etc. So that was like the first generation. Um, and uh, the primary focus, of course, is Bitcoin. Uh, and still the biggest company that does blockchain analytics is Chainalysis, and this is kind of their bread and butter. Um, I think now there's been maybe a, I would say Namsen is part of like the second generation of on-chain analytics. And um, of course, by the way, there are many people who have been doing great stuff with uh, blockchain analytics in the past. So um, I don't want to go and mention names because I'll leave many of them out probably. But uh, what we have focused on is not so much the use of um, on-chain analytics to, you know, solve sort of AML and regulatory uh, issues, but rather to help the market participants themselves. So how can you use on-chain analytics to um, improve your investment decisions, for example? Like how can you discover new opportunities? How can you perform due diligence on those opportunities? 
and how can you defend your own portfolio by knowing about certain events that take place and getting real-time alerts when that happens. So I think I think there's the history is pretty short, but I would sort of break it into those two uh, different different stages. Um, and so you know we think it's cool that you can use on-chain analytics for other things than than uh, just these sort of um, regulatory uh, use cases. And uh, we strongly believe that in order for the space to, to succeed, people who you know operate. Uh, on blockchains and who do things on blockchains, they need to have high quality analytics at their fingertips. And that's what we try to provide them with. Okay, yeah. And do you see Nansen filling the Fireblocks role uh, in using the, its data to KYC participants to permission dApps uh, in the future? Or are y'all doing that now? We don't do it now. Um, could, it could be. It's not really something that's on our roadmap because it's a lot of this is kind of out of our control. So you can make bets on it, you know, if that is a trend that's going to happen. Obviously, we're quite well positioned to help out there, but um, we think there's a lot of interesting things we can do, even if that's, you know, sort of KYC DeFi, like, becomes a big thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it could be something we do, but it's not something that's specifically on our roadmap. Okay. When I think of blockchain analytics, I, I, I think of Willy Woo and chain analysis, which which you mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like they're more Bitcoin based. I don't know if Willy Woo does uh, Ethereum analysis uh, either, but why why have you chosen uh, Ethereum and DeFi uh, for this project? Yeah, so I think first of all, you know, why did they choose Bitcoin is also maybe another question we we could ask, okay. and, and and I think and I think. Uh, the reason for that is obviously, first of all, Bitcoin is the is the pioneer uh, among all the cryptocurrencies and all the blockchains. But I think something uh, else as well um, is important, and that is that many of these analytics companies, in addition to say chain analysis, you have you know Elliptic, uh, you have CipherTrace, uh, TRM Labs, and so on. Many of them actually emerged uh, during the last bear market, right? Or they at least they were growing the most and building the most, uh, investing in their business in the bear market. And the interest there, you know, that early uh, was, especially among institutions and those who needed these uh, help with these things, the interest was in Bitcoin at that point in time. Like, no one really needed analytics for, say, tokens in 2018 because the whole market was like tanking. And so the reason we chose to focus on Ethereum, I mean, there's a few different things. First of all, we felt that you didn't have great products for Ethereum already. I mean, these other companies are very Bitcoin oriented. There are exceptions, I think, like TRM Labs, which is a younger company. And also, I would say a second generation uh, blockchain analysis company is more focused on other chains, including Ethereum. Um, but for us, you know, we didn't see that there was a really good product out there. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that we really believe in the Ethereum ecosystem. And um, I think also, you know, we, we were kind of, so, so there was an, a fundamental belief in that ecosystem. And if you're building, if you're doing anything with data, you're building integrations. The nice thing about Ethereum is that if you build up your integrations with Ethereum and so many different things happen on Ethereum, you get the benefit of more easily being able to integrate with those. So we had a laser focus on Ethereum uh, from the beginning. Um, and and so I think we were fortunate in that we had the, the you know, we had DeFi summer. 
which uh, is when our product, first of all, we launched the product right before DeFi summer. And second, you know, it was extremely useful during DeFi summer to understand uh, what are people putting their funds into, uh, where's the capital flowing, um, and basically solving those same problems I said before of like discovery of opportunities, due diligence, and, and defining your portfolio. So um, that's that's kind of the initial motivation. Like we, we were personally more interested in Ethereum. Um, also, the, the market sort of uh, showed very clearly that the, the Bitcoin area is a bit more crowded, and we were kind of late, a bit later to the game there. But Ethereum, you know, was and still is pretty young. Um, and then, yeah, and then the, the market conditions uh, also worked in our favor in terms of making our platform more valuable as people navigated all these different yield farms, all these new token opportunities, etc. Yeah, and when I think of, I mean, the only type of due diligence or discovery that I do on the blockchain is through Etherscan, uh, really, or due, due yeah. analytics, I guess. Um, which it's not a lot, um, but that's that. I think that's what most people are most familiar with. And uh, I'm wondering, because there is so much information on the blockchain and in a transaction, what is not available to see on Etherscan that is actually very helpful uh, for Nansen in identifying a wallet or, or putting a tag on a wallet? Oh, I, I love that question. Uh, so first of all, I love Etherscan. I use it every day. Uh, and uh, I see Nansen is very complementary to, to Etherscams. But I think of Etherscan as like a reference guide or an encyclopedia. It's kind of what, where you go to look things up. Uh, it's not really where you go to discover stuff. I mean, what exactly do you discover on, on Etherscan, right? Like in, in our case, I can tell you some of the things that you discover if you use Nansen. First of all, you can go into our, our uh, dashboard called Smart Money, and you can see, hey, the wallets that have most successfully been yield farming and trading in the past, what are they doing right now? You know, what, where are they putting their money? Are they, you know, buying specific tokens? Are they moving their money into stable coins? Are they, you know, jumping into yield farms, etc.? So that's like the first thing you can you can look at right away, the smart money concept. Because if you have, say, close to 200 million addresses on Ethereum, you don't really care what all of them do. You just, I mean, now I'm talking from the investor's perspective. What right. you care about is what the, the smart money is doing. And so we try to curate that and filter it down to sort of the main addresses that you might want to follow. So that's that's one thing you can do right away. Um, you can also look at uh, dashboards like Hot Contracts, which surfaces new smart contracts that have a lot of in um inflow in, in, in the form of capital. Uh, and then again, we qualify sort of how many of uh, these addresses classify as smart money. And so this is, you know, these are just some of the things that you, you can discover there. But the key thing that sort of is a theme throughout Nansen is that when you look at, you know, tables of uh, addresses, contracts, etc., you just have really high coverage on labels. And so if you look at the most popular dashboard we have, which is token god mode, if you would go to even look up a stable coin like USDC and you would look at what are, what are the notable wallets uh, that have been you know making uh, transactions in the last seven days, you can see where the money is flowing because you can see immediately, hey, this is an Aave address, this is Binance, this is FTX, this is Compound, the Polygon Bridge, you know, Shiba Swap, Liquidity Pool, etc. And you can also see 
the largest individual transactions where you see Justin Sun removing $600 million from Aave, and you see Alameda moving close to $200 million into Polygon, et cetera, et cetera. So you just get this overview much faster than any other platform. And the reason uh, we are able to show this is because we have a whole team dedicated to attribution or what we call wallet labeling. Um, so that means, you know, there's literally, you know, a combination of man and machine here, people working uh, internally with trying to figure out what different contracts are. But then a large part of it is, of course, automated, where you develop heuristics and you try to tag up addresses automatically. So, and, you know, instead of seeing like here are the top or here are like the 15 main Binance wallets, in Nansen, you also have like more than 3 million deposit wallets on Binance, right? So the coverage is just way higher when it comes to uh, entity uh, labels and also behavioral labels that we use for addresses. Okay. Yeah. And you, when you mentioned Justin Sun, uh, is there, is it that specific? Is there a label that says Justin Sun's wallet or probably Justin Sun's wallet? So it, it is a, it is a very good question because it kind of touches on like privacy and individuals and so on. And so the main focus for us is certainly not individuals. It's on contracts, uh, like projects, exchanges, et cetera. Uh, in some cases <clears throat> you have, like out in the public domain information about which wallets are owned by which uh, public figures. And in those cases, we have also added them, you know, attributing the source for it as well. So the Justin Sun example, yeah, that's, we actually have a label because it's widely known through various different media outlets, uh, you know, th that those addresses are known, uh, are owned by him. But in general, it's not like we go around like hunting for wallet addresses of, of normal people or anything like that. This is This is when you have information that's already in the public domain for individuals. For corporations, it's a bit different. There we do more investigative work. Uh, we match up, you know, press releases of investment rounds with transactions that we see on chain um, and so on and so forth. So yeah, it, it, it is that specific in some cases, but mostly it's focused on like projects, corporations, um, et cetera. Okay, yeah, and do you have institutional clients? And if you do, what do they, I mean, you obviously probably can't say specifically who they are, but what did they look like? What is their profile? Yeah, I mean, some of them I can say who are because they've allowed us <laughs> to say that we, that they use our product in, in certain press pieces and so on. So, you know, funds like Three Arrows, uh, Polychain, Pantera, uh, they use uh, Nonsen. And again, it's for the same thing. It's like, for discovery and due diligence and, and defining their portfolios. I don't mean to repeat myself, but the use case is kind of universal. If you are primarily trying to, you know, maximize returns on your capital. Um, we currently don't really have a great support for like institutional customers, but it's something that we're building out. Uh, and for example, there's no API at the moment, which some people find strange and, and it kind of is, but it's because we're still a pretty young company and we haven't prioritized uh, offering that. Um, but so you can imagine many of these larger institutional customers will probably be using our APIs uh, over time. Um, so, so yeah, I would say the use case is actually, you know, pretty similar if you're a large uh, institutional crypto fund uh, or if you're just kind of a, a retail investor looking to ape into different things and, and discover no, new opportunities. Um, I think recently we've had a bit of traction in the NFT community because we have also created NFT dashboards. 
And so I think more and more you see people who are into NFTs using Nansen uh, to pick up on new collections that are hot and also better understand what they're getting into when they buy these different NFT uh, NFT collections. Uh, so that's that's like another new kind of new customer segment for us recently. Yeah, that sounds really interesting, actually. Like, what are what are some of the identifiers that you see on chain that would lead someone to believe that this could be a new hot NFT project like the Bored Apes or something like that? That's a great question. I think the first thing is that it will typically pop up in our 24 hour NFT market overview, which literally just shows how much traded volume you have for a specific collection. But then if you drill down and if you look at something like uh, Bored Apes, right, there are actually a lot of uh, influencer addresses that I wouldn't say they they don't obviously control the market, but they certainly influence the market. Yeah. Uh, and there are some there are some known ones, right, that are popular on Twitter as well. They have lots of followers there, and you know that's one thing to look for if any of these influencers have gone you know big on this collection. And that's you know that was the case with Bored Apes and Pranksy, for example. Um, but there's there's tons of other great wallets that you can follow if you you know do a bit of digging and uh you can actually set up smart alerts where you get notifications when these specific addresses make uh make any moves and so sometimes that can be quite helpful to know that there's a new nft launch uh, happening so so certainly looking at the the sort of influencers being involved is one thing and then you know there's the general kind of traded volume right the, uh, how is the floor price moving does it seem to be picking up uh, do you have other notable buyers that are buying these NFTs, which you can see visually in some of our charts? Um, and you know, one very simple metric that many people care about is is um, effectively how many unique addresses hold NFTs from a specific collection. So, if you have ten thousand tokens in a collection, and say five thousand addresses, that's a great sign because effectively it it makes uh, the ownership quite distributed, and it means that a lot of people are a part of that specific NFT community. And that's one of the strong things with Bored Apes, for example, which is basically close to close to 5,000 addresses at this point. Um, and, you know, there's only 10,000 uh, Bored Apes out there. So, like, on average, people have two each, although most addresses, of course, only hold one. Yeah, I feel like community is also important, but I don't think really community... Uh, for an NFT project is something that you can track on chain. But like you said, the distributed addresses and influencer wallet adoption are, are probably two of the main things that you see uh, for those projects. That's really interesting. Um, I, think, I think, I mean, it, it depends how you look at it, right? Like, um, I agree, like you can't read out of one chart sort of the quality of a community, but it's kind of like... Um, maybe a necessary but not a sufficient uh, aspect of the community. Like it needs to be a certain size, probably. Um, that's one aspect. But the other part is because you have these wallet labels and you can look at, you know, who are these different uh, influencers so and so on, uh, you can make an assessment on, you know, how likely is this influencer uh, in, in sort of uh, being, being, succe- in being successful in creating this community or at least contributing to it. So, so it's certainly right. It's hard to put kind of a uh, hard number on the value or quality of a community, but I think these different signals can help you inform, get more informed on what the community actually is. 
Yeah, and I know that historically that Nansen's been involved in DeFi analytics, um, but it, it does sound like you're starting to dip your toe into the metaverse a, a little bit more. Are there any other types of projects or dashboards for the metaverse that y'all are working on or have right now? So th there's definitely more uh, NFT stuff coming. Um, a lot of it is about um, things like um, tracking your gains and your profits on different NFT collections. So it is kind of trading and investing oriented. Sure. Um, and then, yeah, there are some other cool features that, that we are exploring, uh, which would make Nonsen a bit more social as a platform. And, you know, it would be nice, for example, if you could uh, connect with, say, the owner of an NFT and, you know, make an actual bid and perhaps even close the transaction right within the platform, right? So stuff like that we're, we're looking into. And then, you know, we're also adding support for other chains as well, which is something that many people ask for. So I think actually, yeah, we actually shipped Polygon support a few hours ago. And so that's something that people can can look at. And there's a few more, you know, layer twos and, and other blockchains coming uh, soon as well. Yeah, that was one of my questions is, you know, uh, what other, what layer twos and side chains are you working on, like Polygon and Matic? Did you see any, was it more difficult or was it basically about the same in setting up those dashboards for Polygon? It, the good thing is that it's EVM based, right? And right. It's, it's very similar to Ethereum. Um, you also have many of the same like node providers uh, that mean, and you're the same like uh, API endpoints, etc. So um, that part is quite easy. Uh, at the same, and at the ben one benefit as well of our labeling is that a lot of the labels can actually carry over, right? Because you often use the same address um, on these two different chains when you're bridging over. So that gives us a way to solve like the cold start of uh, jumping onto a new chain. Mm -hmm. uh, but it does add a lot of you know resource needs uh, when you do attribution because, like I said before, it is a combination of man and machine. And um, now you know we have to look at more chains at the same time. The good thing is we have a lot of good uh, internal tooling. We have a really good architecture for spinning up new heuristics very fast. And so, you know, we have a we have a scalable way to do this, but it's certainly it's certainly not easy. And I think Polygon was a good first additional chain to add because it is very similar to Ethereum. And so the strategy, at least for the next, um, let's say, six months is to focus on EVM based chains um, and layer twos because we can reuse a lot of the technology, but also because it's more likely that our user base will be, you know, jumping around between these different chains and layer twos. Yeah, and I haven't really thought about that. You know, the Polygon Bridge, it does use the same wallet address, which is convenient, but from a privacy standpoint, doesn't doesn't really help your case. I mean, but if you're already doxxed, I mean, I guess it, it you know, it doesn't really yeah. make that big of a difference. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you have to think of this in, in terms of, um, I think of it as a bit of paradigm shift, uh, where I think what happened with social media, for example, you know, 20 years ago, no one would be comfortable sharing like private photos to in, in the public uh, forums in the same way that we do with social media today. I think maybe the same thing, maybe not exactly the same thing, but something analogous is happening with with finance and public blockchains, where you know. You, you actually, if you own NFTs and you show off your NFTs, you are implicitly doxing your own addresses, right? So 
that there's no way around that really unless you adopt an anonymous um, personality of course but if you as an individual want to show off your nfts like there's no way around that so i think people just will they are all they are already quite comfortable uh you know being more public about which assets they own uh, and i think this trend might actually continue but of course there's going to be one crowd that will do everything they can to obfuscate uh, replace um, or get new addresses and, and, and move funds around, etc. So, so that's and that's fine as well, right? And there's going to be people using, you know, privacy solutions, etc. But I think there's going to be a large part of people using blockchains who aren't really that uh, they don't really care that much about it. You know, the fact that it is it is public. Um, so that's at least how I see it. Um, of course, many people view it differently and think that like privacy change is like the only way way out of this yeah and on that I, how does nansen deal with mixers like tornado cash how does how does that is that easy to decipher or is that kind of a roadblock for uh tracking a, a wallet address or, or identifying a wallet address so um you know tornado is uh is uh, still pretty young mm-hmm and there have been efforts um, to actually de-anonymize uh, addresses. Um, there's one paper that was published in, in 2000 uh, by some researchers. I can't remember exactly the institution uh, they worked at. I think it was a European research institution um, where they effectively tried to um, take two addresses and say, hey, what's the probability that these two belong to the same entity? because of you know various different clues that were lying around on uh, the blockchain. And so, first of all, it's very important to remember that like Tornado Cash is not bulletproof in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the other maybe more subtle point um, is that it is a privacy pool. And so if everyone else, and this is an extreme case, right? But like if everyone else has actually poor privacy um, management, where they actually leak information and then you are the only one left who has not been doxxed, then you sort of by definition, you will be doxxed as well, right? So there's kind of like a, you're, you're almost relying on the other people's ability to stay private while using Tornado. Of course, if you get a lot of funds going in, it becomes infeasible and, and very impractical to do this. But, um, but certainly there's, you know, some interesting research that's been done, which shows that you can actually still profile and de-anonymize and, and, and cluster together addresses that are using Tornado. Okay, yeah, that's something I've always wondered is how effective are those mixers? Um, and, you know, thinking of Nancy... You know, oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Just, just wanted to say, you know, it's also there are also many other types of mixers. There are less sophisticated attempts to mix funds like Plus Token, where they just make it really inconvenient for you to, say, traverse Etherscan but if you have, you know, a graph database, or if you know how to query those transactions, you can still work out where the funds are sitting, right, and where the funds went. So, so I think Tornado Cash definitely is like, you know, radically better than that. But there's still a lot of mixing that goes on where it seems like the people doing the mixing just assume that Etherscan is like the only way to look at the transactional data. And it's very important to remember that like, you can actually trace everything on the blockchain right if you just have the right tools right and yeah because you can you know if people are voting in governance or um 
yeah. receiving so, poems. Yeah. 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 I mean, like governance is another case where it's very hard to stay. I mean, you can stay anonymous or pseudonymous, right, in governance, but at some point, you know, it just seems like if you want to be an active participant, especially if you're like a venture firm or something like that, you're going to leave clues on the blockchain through voting, etc. So, um, so I think governance is another sort of drive, force that drives us to be more public about uh, owning uh, digital assets and crypto. So, so I think there are these forces that are kind of driving towards transparency, while at the same time, of course, some forces are pulling uh, towards more privacy. Yeah, and speaking of other chains, like, would it even be possible, or would it just be too big of a headache for Nansen to try to get on something like Zcash or Monero? I mean, I can pretend I have the answer to that, but I actually don't. Okay, uh, we, we've never we've never really looked at it. Uh, so let's let's switch the conversation uh, over to DAOs because uh, at the Index Co-op we are a DAO. Uh, and you've been involved with DAOs before. Can you share some of your experience? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are basically three main DAOs that I've um, been been active with. So the first one was a DAO that uh, I co-founded. Uh, it was kind of a micro DAO, and we wanted to test out the Aragon platform because we thought that was a, a really cool project. And um, so the, the premise of this DAO, again, is a micro DAO. So it's, it's not necessarily the type of huge DAOs that you'd see now around DeFi treasuries and, and so on. But the premise was we were a bunch of people, data scientists and data engineers. Uh, we were working as independent consultants uh, for like different companies and different projects. Uh, but we kind of felt like you know, that model was not great. Uh, one reason was that the su supply and demand for an independent consultant is very imbalanced. So sometimes you get a lot of work and other times uh, you don't get any work. So that's like one problem, but there's also a social aspect to it, right? You don't really have a community if you're an independent, like contractor, independent consultant. At the same time, we did not want to be employees and we didn't really want to start our own sort of consultancy firm because that felt a bit old school and not exactly giving us that freedom that we wanted. So we figured, hey, let's create something that's in between. Let's create a DAO where effectively as members of that DAO, the more value we create for the whole sort of group, the more ownership we get. And so the very simple model, it was actually a form of liquidity mining in hindsight, but this was, this was like early 2019. Uh, but the idea was if you bring in a project, you know, and you, for whatever reason, can't deliver on it, but then you sort of refer it to someone else in the DAO, then you get a small cut and both of you, the, the sort of the referrer and the person who actually ends up doing the work will get more ownership in the DAO because you're sort of facilitating transactions and making the network grow. So that was like the, my first experience with DAO. Um, and, you know, very quickly, I think we understood that we would have to scale it to become much bigger in order to get the liquidity we needed. And it was good to sort of find work for people and so on, but it, it sort of didn't grow very much more and people were uncertain of how to scale it, etc. So it sort of remained a small experiment. And actually, fun fact, uh, Nansen actually was born within that Discord as kind of a side project that came out of that. So, oh, okay. um, and so, so that's, that was my first experience. The second, uh, you know, initiative that I've been a part of is the Lido DAO, uh, which, uh, if you don't know Lido Finance, it's um, 
a staking uh, platform, decentralized staking platform for uh, Ethereum 2.0. And so it's effectively the largest pool where you can deposit Ether uh, and, and stake Ether without being a validator yourself. Then the network takes care of it. So I've been a DAO member there from the beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, there is the, the need for DAO there is very clear because you need to decide, like, who should be validators, um, what limits should those validators have, uh, and you need, there's a lot of, like, governance decisions around uh, managing, making sure that you're a good custodian, like, uh, or, or at least a steward of, of the ETH that gets deposited and the resources around validators, etc. So that's the second part. And then the third is Pleaser DAO, which is a totally different concept. It's an art collecting DAO, and it was created very bottom up um, when uh, People Pleaser created an NFT for Uniswap V3, the launch, and um, some of us wanted to just own that piece, and so we decided to let's pull some funds together and try to try to you know win the auction, and so uh, we we managed to get some some great people in, and at the end, yeah, we won the auction, and then from there it sort of just evolved organically, like DAOs sometimes do, and now that DAO owns um, a few very iconic NFTs, and uh, we also recently did a sort of DAO to DAO transaction where we uh, took a loan by collateralizing some of these iconic NFTs. Wow, yeah. So you you definitely do have a lot of experience with. Uh, I didn't realize you were a uh, part of Pleaser DAO as well. So how how do you see DAOs using Nansen or just on chain analytics in general uh, to further benefit uh, the the mission, I guess, of the DAO? I think in general terms, you want to have you know information right about about your environment and. I think uh, Nansen is almost like a sense. It's like an eye or an ear or or something like that. Um, many people have, have said that like before <laughs> before I discovered Nansen, I was blind, but now I can see. I think that was a quote from Mariano, uh, who was make, who was at MakerDAO before uh, when he first used Nansen. And so I think anyone who is sort of living in this on-chain environment uh, will benefit from knowing what exactly goes on uh, on-chain. So like. If you're doing governance, you want to understand, you know, the funds that are moving around, right? Like, what are the what are the different entities that are that have a large stake uh, in in the DAO? Depending on how big your DAO is, as well, right? But if you're operating in something, you know, pretty big, uh, then you, you you don't know everyone who is who is in the DAO, right? And that's kind of part of the point that it should be trustless. So, I think. Um, Better understanding, like the stakeholders in a DAO, is certainly one thing that is very useful for. Uh, we we don't have a lot of support for like you know governance and DAO specific features. Maybe it is something that we should add later. Um, but you know we did some early experiments where we built some dashboards to track every single Aragon DAO vote. And uh, for example, we looked at. Um, how close the voters in Aragon votes were to the, the, uh, the uh, basically um, the team's wallet. So like how many degrees away, like did, was there some form of like insider voting going on with, um. you know, uh, people, which actually was, this was a project that Aragon wanted us to do, right? So it was like, it was for transparency and uh, it was not us trying to like <laughs> sort of uh, pin anyone down. It was actually Aragon that wanted, they were interested to see like, how does this look like, you know, and 
who influences these governance decisions. So we have done some work there, but we don't currently have any sort of specific features for like governance and voting and so on. But maybe something we should explore. Yeah, because I, I felt like uh, DAO tooling uh, could be a, a pretty big thing in, in the future. And I'm just thinking about how could the index co-op use these analytics uh, specifically. But I And I'm thinking that, you know, seeing who votes on which proposals is very interesting. And then also if, if we could make a like a profile of who our token holders are and what applications they interact with and just seeing is, you know, we could have that data, but you know, how, how can we, how could that be beneficial to us? Yeah, I think so. Another aspect here, which is another trend um, is, you know, how do you find more people to bring into your community, right? Like what are, what are some addresses that you would want to have as part of your community? And here again, like addresses and identities become very closely connected. And I often talk, talk about this concept of your address being an asset. And I think that's very relevant for, for DAOs because you want to get sort of the quote unquote, the best addresses into your DAO, the ones that are, that are proactive, you know, they, are, they participate in governance. Uh, they they may, maybe fund different initiatives, right? Um, so so I think that's another aspect where you can try to actually think, hey, you know, who would you want to bring in and almost think of it as like a growth strategy for your DAO, if that's a goal, like if you want to bring in more great people into the community. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. And so Nansen, it, it's Nansen.ai. And so yeah. how, how does AI tie into all of this in crypto DeFi and the metaverse? So a lot of the, as I mentioned, um, a lot of the labeling is, is automated. So more than 99% of pretty much any label you see in Onsen will be generated by algorithms. And so uh, I would say right now, m- most of those algorithms are you know, heuristic, uh, heuristics and, and they're deterministic. So would you classify that as AI? Probably not. But we do have some projects internally. We've done some proofs of concepts to show, you know, if you wanted to do more probabilistic um, approaches, which like that ha- happens to be my background, like before I moved into crypto. So I-, I kind of, I'm eager to start working on that, but you have to lay the foundations first. But eventually I expect that a lot of our labels will be machine learning uh, inferred, but you do need to have that system in place where you can't just, you know, build a model and not be sure about its accuracy and then roll it out and get a bunch of wrong labels, which causes, you know, sort of a, a, a negative flywheel or, or sort of compounding negative effect. Um, you need to make sure that you have a good base layer and then you can start doing more machine learning based uh, approaches on top of that. But like at the end of the day, we are an analytics company and and you can't really do like analytics in 2021 without relying on a lot of machine learning and AI mm-hmm. methods. So, so that's kind of the link there in, in the word. Yeah. Is there anything like this in traditional finance? Like I'm thinking like forensic accounting maybe, but that, that might be more for a, a I don't know, a crime related uh, a forensic accounting, but how does, how does this type of analysis differ from traditional finance? So, I mean, the cliche that you know is that we are kind of like a bloomberg of crypto right so so that's kind of how some people look at this if you look at some of the dashboards uh, or screenshots from bloomberg uh, a lot of it is like actually pretty similar to what you would see in Nelson. Uh when you look at like top holders of, of certain equities and so on 
it looks very similar to like the top holders with the labels and all that stuff that you see in Nonsen. So um, not sure about like forensics tools as such, but certainly analytics is a, you know, the, if you just look at the market cap of the biggest um, analytics companies in traditional finance, they're worth like several hundred billions of dollars, right? Bloomberg alone, which is a private company, so we don't know the exact valuation, of course. But um, but certainly uh, these companies have been very important in traditional finance. And so I would say, I'm not sure what I would compare Nansen directly with, but you know maybe it's Bloomberg. Um, one thing that I would say, which I think is is very unique to there's actually two things that are very unique to the blockchain analytics and and traditional finance uh, financial analytics. The first is that you can go down to the transaction level on like everything, right? So you can start with your yeah. high level macro metrics um, that you would see in something like Bloomberg as well, but then you can keep drilling down to like the individual addresses, the individual transactions. And that's something that's very unique with blockchains, right? Like the whole transaction layer is fully transparent and auditable. The second part, which is cool, and I think we haven't really seen, you know, that much innovation in that area yet, but I think we will, is the transactional layer. So uh, if you see someone using Bloomberg, um, first of all, you know, there's a lot of uh, interaction going on on Bloomberg, like messaging and so on. But if they wanted to actually close an OTC deal on Bloomberg, you have to bring in your settlement people on both sides, and that process might take days. With blockchain and with DeFi, you can imagine that those flows are actually just built into the UI, right? So you can actually settle a transaction like right into the platform. And you know that's that's an area that I'm very interested in. And I think um, I think you know forensics is kind of like one use case for this stuff now. But I think, um, you know, in not too long, you will see Nansen go kind of beyond the analytics and into the more like social and transactional parts of crypto. Okay. I can see, I can see how that transition would take place, definitely. Um, and so, at least to my knowledge, your two biggest public dashboards are the gas tracker and the ETH2 uh, deposit tracker. And uh, we were just curious, based on some of the data your team is seeing, do you expect a significant increase in staked ETH uh, post-merge? Or are you seeing that most entities are just spinning up validators now? What are y'all seeing there in general? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's, it's also really hard to say, right? Okay. Um, I mean, personally, I've been quite surprised by how much Ether has come into uh, ETH2. Um, and I think sort of the more evidence we have of ETH2 actually like hitting the hitting the deadlines and like being on track and actually working, the more capital is going to flow in as well. Um, but like right now we have more than 6 million Ether deposited, which is pretty big given that it's you're making a pretty long term commitment and you get, you know, you get yields, pretty good yields. I mean, good deals for ETH at least. Um, but you're also making a long-term commitment. In many cases, you're also uh, introducing some some uh, overhead and costs if you're running your own validators. Um, and so, clearly, the community has shown that there's there's you know interest in staking, probably more than I would have expected at this point. And so, the more evidence we get for uh, things working out and you know post merge and so on, I think we will just see a lot more ETH coming in. 
Um, it's hard to say how much, but I, I, I'd be surprised if you don't see some kind of inflection point like after that. What is the most interesting thing that people should be paying attention, attention to on the blockchain? Or like what catches your eye when you see it on chain and what, what notifications do you have enabled? So first of all, I tend to switch up my notifications quite frequently. Uh, so I, you know, if there's something that I'm looking at, like maybe there's a specific token I'm interested in. Um, maybe I've recently discovered that someone is making a lot of good trades recently, then I will set alerts for those things, but they have a pretty short shelf life. And that's kind of a good thing. You want to like rotate out, uh, your alerts and then switch them to other things that are more relevant to you at this point in time. Um, that's kind of the general way I, I approach this. Um, I'm like really into, or I mean, not, not as much as many other people, but I think NFTs are really interesting. And I think, uh, you know, some people sort of seem to think that, you know, NFTs were like the peak of the crypto market and, and you had all these like exorbitant uh, investments in, in NFTs. But I think there's tons of proof that there are like, there's real engagement and real traction around NFT communities. Um, and so that goes back to the discussion before where you can see actual like on-chain activity around NFTs. Uh, so that's, that's definitely like one thing that I'm personally quite interested in right now. Um, and then another sort of takeaway, which I think most people perhaps already know after having been in crypto for a while, but you know, before I went into crypto, I kind of expected markets to be efficient. And when you start uh, doing stuff in crypto, you realize that, hey, it is, it is actually possible to have a very clear information edge in many cases, uh, or even an execution edge in some cases where you can sort of act on an opportunity that other people can. And so that's another sort of general, I think, premise for the whole nonsense product that you can actually pick up stuff that most people are not yet aware of and then you can act on it and that can you know generate uh, good returns for you uh, and there's tons of examples of that like you know i've discovered um certain crypto funds that have made you know vesting deals with crypto projects before they were announced and so you could invest in that project wait for their release and see the token pump because now people are jumping into it and then you know either stay on or exit at that point if you wanted to uh and it, there's tons of examples like that um and yeah so so the list goes on with sort of uh, anecdotes on on how you can use this uh, this information yeah i've i've felt that way too that the crypto markets aren't near as efficient as the traditional markets do, do you have any theory as to why that might be i mean there are, yeah there are many i think um, pretty clear reasons. Number one, there's just less participants. Uh, number two, uh, you, it's much more fragmented and you have a lot of small markets, like very, very small markets. And it's just not feasible to have, you know, perfect information flow when everything's very fragmented. And in many cases, we're also talking about relatively small amounts of money. So there are certain tokens that many of the largest crypto funds probably just wouldn't touch, but because you don't have the liquidity, right? So if the smartest funds or market makers who would normally make sure that the markets are efficient are not even participating because the, that specific sub market is so small, then sort of by definition, it will stay very inefficient. So 
that's at least how I look at it. I think it's just kind of it's just math to some extent, like fewer people and like lots of tiny micro markets that makes it really fragmented. Yeah, and I, I see we're running up on time here a little bit, so I just have two two more quick questions. Well, one might not be that quick, but how do you view the future of privacy and analytics in crypto in general? Yeah, I think, uh, as I said before, I think there's kind of two forces here. Uh, one force is pushing towards more privacy, and another force uh, maybe indirectly is pushing for more transparency. Things like governance and NFTs are more... Uh, transparency and sort of social in nature. So um, I, I think there's not going to be like one answer here. I don't think everyone's going to use, you know, privacy blockchains or, you know, privacy layer twos and things like that. But I also think that, you know, many people at some point will be uncomfortable displaying all their digital assets transactions on a public blockchain. And, and frankly, many people you know, haven't really realized before recently that this can actually be traced. So, so I, I kind of take the view that these, these two uh, segments of users and these, two, these different use cases that are driven by different forces will coexist. Um, and I also think that one of, the, one of the beauties of blockchains is that they are auditable and transparent. So I, I don't think you will ever go kind of full private and you will have no insights into how stuff works. I think people appreciate that DeFi is very transparent and you can audit things real time. And if you just have additional real time, sorry, real world context to those audits by knowing more about the entities that are doing things, etc., I think that's generally a good thing. Um, and it makes the whole industry healthier and more sustainable. So. You know, that's I'm obviously biased. Like um, we're we're tagging addresses, right? So that's that's kind of obvious. But I really strongly believe that there is a there are really good reasons for why you'd want to favor transparency over privacy in many cases. Yeah, well, th thanks for answering that question. And uh, yeah, we're gonna let you go. But before we do, uh, where can people go to find out more about you and Nansen? So definitely go to nansen.ai. You can also follow Nansen on Twitter, which is Nansen underscore AI. And then if you want to follow my shit posting on Twitter, that's A Svanavik. All right. Well, we appreciate you having a, or appreciate you being here with us uh, today, Alex. And uh, thanks everyone in the audience uh, for joining. Uh, again, I'm, I'm your host, Crypto Texan, with conversations with a co op. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, Alex. Thanks. Take care.